This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Deja vu all over again. Wow. It seems like only a few weeks ago I was talking about this major snowstorm hitting Buffalo, but it was nothing like this. With huge winds and snowdrifts of as much as six feet, it is an absolute disaster up there in western New York. 17 storm-related deaths reported so far. Uh, Regular listeners know that I went to college, State University of New York at Buffalo, so I know the geography. I see the pictures of Main Street. I know the surrounding towns, Amherst, Cheektowago, Williamsville. And what's happening is... Nobody who's trapped in their car, or almost nobody, has been able to be rescued because the rescuers have also been trapped in their cars. Everything is impassable. Now, maybe that's eased a bit by today, but nevertheless, it's a whiteout. You can't, there's just no visibility whatsoever. Having given you the weather news, let me say that I hope, uh, I want to wish you a merry post-Christmas day. Uh, Many people taking off this week. I've got a lot to get to here. I hope you had a chance to see Media Buzz. If not, if you were celebrating with family or opening presents or having a great meal, um, we've got most of the segments online now. Let me also mention that toward the end of this podcast, I'm going to do something that I haven't tried, which is there's new news breaking about the Twitter files, but it's just coming out in bits and pieces right now. I haven't had a chance to, you know, collate it and analyze it, but I'm just going to read some of it to you in an effort to give you the latest breaking news rather than wait until tomorrow. So bear with me on that. Meanwhile, another thing that happened over weekends, holiday's supposed to be slow period, right? Uh Uh-uh. Is that a judge, a state judge in Arizona, rejecting Carrie Lake's uh, legal challenge where she lost that Arizona governor's race by 17,000 votes. Uh, She said there was, you know, misconduct by Maricopa County election officials. Uh, She has been to Mar-a-Lago twice. She is very much on board with the Donald Trump 2020, the election was stolen narrative or motif. And and now we're seeing that in her case, it looked for quite a while like she was going to win. But what happened is um, she talked about how she didn't want the votes of McCain voters in Arizona, where that name is still widely respected. And Katie Hobbs, the Democrat, wound up on top and I think is about to be inaugurated. So in this ruling, the judge said, you know, look, there's anger and confusion by voters who are subjected to inconvenience uh, at voter centers and technical problems. There were difficulties with the voting machines, but the judge saying this is not solely his duty, excuse me, was not solely to incline an ear to public outcry. A court setting aside a margin like this has never been done in the history of the United States. He said that Plaintiff has no freestanding right to challenge election results based on what plaintiff believes, rightly or wrongly, went awry on election day. In other words, you can bring a case, but just because you say that fraud took place, I'm not seeing any evidence of that. And throwing it out, she says she's going to appeal. Uh, I think that may drag on for a while. Olivia Nuzzi in New York Magazine uh, has all these quotes. It's, it's another one of these pieces. The Washington Post had one. 
I shared with you a little while ago about Trump at Mar-a-Lago, what a kind of a sad situation he's in there. And here are the uh, blind quotes. Trump advisor, quote, he just goes, plays golf, comes back, and Fs off. He has retreated to the golf course into Mar-a-Lago. His world has gotten much smaller. Number two, ex-Trump loyalist. It seems like a joke. It feels like he's going through the motions because he said he would. Trump advisor, number three. It's not there. In this business, you can have it and have it so hot and it can go overnight and it's gone and you just can't get it back. I think we're just seeing it's gone. The magic is gone. Trump advisor, number four. He doesn't have anything else to do. What else can he do? Why did he see Kanye? He wants to be relevant and wants the limelight. He's thirsty. Okay, I sense a certain degree of frustration among Donald Trump's advisors. I would, however, remind you, uh, and we talked about this a little bit on Media Buzz yesterday, that um, he could easily win the nomination. All these people say they're going to run. Two or three or four or five run. I mean, maybe a couple of them have to drop out early, but it is not a real stretch to say that Donald Trump could be the Republican nominee in 2024. And what would happen then? If we had a Biden-Trump rematch, that's one thing. What if Biden gets knocked off in a primary? What if Biden's health declines? I mean, it's just, you know, all of these libs want Donald Trump, all these media liberals, to stay in the news because he's great for ratings. It does it. Ari Fleischer said on my show, the media will never give up on wanting Donald Trump in the news, even when he's dead. And, you know, it's kind of a macabre thing to say, but it's kind of true. I mean, the Democrats ran against Herbert Hoover and the Depression for 50 years, long after Hoover had died. Let me move on now to story number one. Andrew McCarthy has a long piece in National Review about the January 6th committee and so forth. And there's a lot of zigs and zags in this, which is why I find it interesting. Just when you feel like he's going to come down one way, he says yes, but on the other hand. So he talks about, he criticizes the committee's dogged determination to establish a criminal case against Trump. He says there was a skewed presentation of the evidence, for example, and Trump did this video rant, or video message, excuse me, I'll be neutral, uh, about far-left Marxists and fake news media and, and on and on and on, wishing them all, of course, a very Merry Christmas. And, and continuing to say that the election was stolen, of course. That's his view of it. But what McCarthy is saying is that it's not the job of a legislative committee to frame things in a criminal way, except during an impeachment trial, when the Senate, if it gets to the Senate, actually does a trial. But the committee's antics, as McCarthy puts it, could undermine the DOG investigation. Why? I'll tell you why. Because, you know, um, it seems that if the committee, which is rightly seen as extremely partisan, right? It's seven Democrats, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, who both hate Trump. If that, is, if that committee is seen as working hand in glove with the DOJ, which Merrick Garland very much, much wants to be seen as an independent body, not making decisions under any pressure from Joe Biden or anybody else, um, it doesn't reflect well on DOJ. And, and, and so Andy goes through, you know, when Trump gave that speech on the ellipse, uh, he did say, you know, you should go peacefully, and that was edited out. I mean, a lot of these arguments have been made before. Andy has followed this as closely as anybody on the planet and says that this panel gives Trump the defense that a politicized, Democrat-dominated committee pressured the Biden Justice Department to indict Biden's potential opponent. I think that's right. But then that's where the first twist goes. He's going around the roundabout, and he comes out and he says, but enough beating that dead horse. 
it is completely legitimate for a House committee to act like a grand jury if it is conducting an impeachment investigation. Goes on to say that the final report, in the final report, the most damning testimony came from Republicans. I've been saying that again and again and again. Cassidy Hutchinson, Rusty Bowers, Brad Raffensperger, people who worked for Trump, who worked with Trump, who wanted Trump to win. That's where the devastation came in. That's where the, you know, where it had the greatest impact before they decided to do the greatest hits recitation um, to have one more day in the media spotlight. I described it as a bunch of aging rockers, you know, stumbling onto the stage to do a greatest hits medley because that's what it was. It was all snippets of past testimony. Anyway, McCarthy says that if, if Kevin McCarthy, Andy says if Kevin McCarthy hadn't backed down and pulled all his members, you would have had, in the end, this is an interesting counterfactual, as they say, um, you would have had a committee with maybe somebody, if not Jim Jordan, but who I guess was knocked off by Pelosi, but somebody else, you would have had a committee that might have become more bipartisan as in the days of, of the Senate Watergate Committee and the House Judiciary Committee in impeaching Nixon because as more and more evidence came out, some of those Republicans who were dogged defenders of the president might find it harder to defend some of that testimony. I, you know, we'll never know if it would have been different, but certainly it would have taken away the argument that, you know, this committee would not give Trump an even shake on anything. So he goes through all that, and then comes the final twist. He says, okay, it's time, it's conveniently time for the Democrats to make Trump, rather than the doddering incumbent president, the focal point of the 2022 midterms. And yet, reading the committee's final report, like watching the choreographed hearings, is a jaw-dropping experience. It is one thing to know in some general way that Trump's behavior from the lead-up to the 2020 election through the aftermath of the Capitol riot was despicable. It is quite another to read page after page of the gory, accumulated details. Now, I'll truncate this a little bit, but, but Andy McCarthy says it's all here. The premeditation to declare electoral victory regardless of the outcome even as he trailed in polls and defeat looked highly likely. The adamant claim of victory that was, when it was clear that he, not only that he had lost, but that he knew he had lost. The ridiculous lies about systematic fraud, everything from implausible overseas digital manipulation to old-fashioned ballot box stuffing. The exploitation of the influence of the presidency, which caused millions of supporters to believe the election must have been stolen if the president said so, catalyzing their rage. The demagogy about the stolen election repeated incessantly even after his most knowledgeable campaign advisors and administration officials told him he'd lost fair and square with no material fraud. The browbeating of the Justice Department leadership, state legislatures, state election officials in a futile effort to co-opt them into his machinations. Uh, the urging of throngs and supporters to descend on Washington. It goes on and on and on. So basically, M McCarthy says, look, you put it all together in one read, in one place, not that every you know, normal people have the time to go be reading all the indexes and subparagraphs. Uh, it has, says McCarthy, a chilling effect. Now, this is an interesting coincidence. Uh, front page stories, uh, I believe yesterday, the New York Times and Washington Post, each one found a voter who became the symbol of Republican voters who have turned on Trump. So New York Times. Not long ago, Joe Moeller would have seemed an unlikely person to help bury the political legacy of Donald Trump. He's a 24-year-old Republican committee man. 
and law student in Lancaster Township, Pennsylvania. Voted for Trump in 16. Voted for him again in 2020, with some misgivings. And when Trump began spouting lies and conspiracy theories about his 2020 loss, Mueller, who grew up in a solidly conservative area of southeastern Pennsylvania, was troubled to hear many people he knew repeat them. So what happened is uh, he spoke out about misinformation in the election and COVID and was then removed as the chair of the township GOP committee. Quote, I just realized how much of a sham the whole movement was. The moment the veil is pulled from your face, you realize how ugly the face is that you are looking at. So he, you know, I mean, this is a standard trope in journalism. You find the one person who's just, you know, and it's not for people like this. And here's the Washington Post version. As he pulled into the parking lot of the Beulah Land Baptist Church on Election Day last month, nearly everything about Cody Johnson suggested he would vote a certain way. He was white. He was 33, an electrician with no college degree. He had a beard and a used pickup with 151,000 miles, and he was angry at what the country was becoming. He's from northwest Georgia, rural area, where people who looked like him had voted in large majorities to send Donald Trump to the White House and Marjorie Taylor Greene to Congress. Many swept up in the uh, emotional appeal. Uh, Congresswoman Greene would say, they hate you. Talking about uh, elitists and conspirators and communists and pedophiles, enemies of America and so forth. Now he took one last inhale on his vape, walked into the polling place and voted against all of that. He voted against Greene, whom he called an embarrassment. He voted against Herschel Walker, Trump's candidate in, uh, for the Senate seat. I don't want extremists in office, this guy says, and I have some small glimmer of hope that maybe things aren't as screwed up as I think they are. So there you have it, dueling interviews with people who are, of course, the symbol of everything that the journalist wants to say, which is not to say that this is not accurate, because obviously a lot of Republicans or Republican leaners and independents voted against election deniers. Otherwise, the Democrats wouldn't have 51 Senate seats. You know, if Trump's picks like Herschel Walker and um, Blake Masters and the others had somehow won, we'd be looking at both houses of Congress being controlled by the GOP. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Number two, David Friends in The Atlantic is trying to explain the conservative anger and or resentment against Volodymyr Zelensky, who gave this absolutely riveting and inspiring speech to Congress, as you know, last week. So here's activist Candace Owens saying, I just want to punch him. She told her three plus million Twitter followers. Also, Zelensky's visit triggered an astonishing outpouring of raw vitriol from some of the most prominent right-wing voices in the land. Uh, Donald Trump Jr. called Zelensky an international welfare queen. Uh, Matt Walsh, Daily Wire, said Zelensky was a grifting leech. Uh, He goes on to talk about other conservatives. He talks about Tucker. One person here, oh, uh, Charlie Kirk of Turning Point USA. Says Zelensky is the perfect person for D.C. 
barely can speak English, an actor, and totally corrupt. Well, I think his English is decent. And does anyone make fun of you because you can't speak a certain foreign language? And yes, he was an actor, so was Ronald Reagan. Anyway, the main point that Dave French is making here is that, why is this? He quotes Kathy Young, a longtime journalist and commentator, as saying, it's partisanship. If the libs are for it, we're against it. The more offensively, the better. It's the belief that Ukrainian democracy is a Biden, Obama, Hillary Clinton, deep state project. All the more suspect because it's related to Trump's first impeachment. Partly it's the national conservative distaste for liberalism. Not only in America, but in a more fundamental sense that includes Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. So what French goes on to say is, it's not about Ukraine, it's about you. A key reason why the new right hates Zelensky is the new right hates you, in this gentleman's opinion. You are the real enemy. Anything or anyone you like, they will hate. And to be clear, I'm not just talking about polarization between R's and D's. Most Americans still support sending additional arms to Ukraine. This is about polarization against the Democrats, the Republican establishment, and against traditional Reagan conservatives like me, David French says. Coalition, the new, new right calls the Uniparty. So I thought that that was an interesting observation about why, you know, you can say we shouldn't, we should be spending the money here at home, we shouldn't be spending it on Ukraine, and the country does have, obviously, some legacy of corruption, but why so much anger directed at this man who's only trying to save his country from the brutal bombardment and dark, cold winter that the war crime Russian regime has inflicted on it. Story number three. Uh, you know, when you read a lead like former top executive at uh, FTX, that's Sam Bankman's freed, now bankrupt and obviously corrupt uh, crypto trading company, is apologizing for defrauding customers, investors, and lenders, doesn't have quite the impact of knowing that this is his former girlfriend. Her name is Carolyn Ellison. She was put in as the head of Alameda Research, which actually was owned by her boyfriend, and they would give money back and forth. When FTX needed money, Bankman Freed would arrange to get that money, uh, billions in some instances, loans, or they do just take it. Remember, this is other people's money, other investors' money that they never should have been playing around with. He just would get it from his girlfriend. So Carolyn Ellison was facing, or is potentially facing, 110 years in prison. And if she testifies against him, Knowing all that she knows, I mean, it's very hard. Let's just say he will have a real challenge uh, beating the legal rap here. Uh, she told a judge in New York at a hearing, I agreed with others to borrow several billion dollars from FTX to repay those loans when they diverted the loans were, you know, it becomes like this pyramid scheme. You owe people money, you take out a loan to pay the money, then you got to re repay the loan. She said she is very sorry and wants to apologize to the company's customers and investors and to Alameda's lenders. It, it is just a slow motion a collapse of cards. Okay, number four. Elon Musk has a way of speaking colorfully. So here he is uh, doing one of these, I think it's one of these Twitter spaces interviews, maybe it's a podcast interview, I can't quite tell. He described Twitter as a plane that is headed toward the ground at high speed with the engines on fire and the controls don't work. Yikes. All right. Musk goes on to say that given what's going on with the Fed and the economy, we have a net cash outflow. But he uses this, you know, burning plane descending metaphor. 
if you don't make any changes on the order of like six, six and a half billion next year, with revenue probably tracking to three, that's a negative cash flow. Three billion dollars a year, not good, since Twitter has one billion in cash. So that's why I spent the last five weeks cutting costs like crazy. And he says, yeah, which you're also trying to get the advertisers. I've spoken to a number of the advertisers. Their requests are not fuzzy or irrational. They're like quite reasonable. They're just like, show us a return on investment and why that makes sense. And I'm yes, like, I agree. If I were in that position, I would also want a return on investment. In prosperous times, there's plenty of budget for advertising. But when times are tough, says Elon, then the hard questions of return on investment are asked. So basically, he's just trying to put out the fire on the plane before it crash lands. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Uh, Number five, and then we'll get to the Twitter COVID situation, which I teased. So Axios has this piece, which has, you know, caused a lot of murmurs in media circles, in which it says the following, Michael Bloomberg, billionaire businessman, owns Bloomberg News, also great philanthropist, also former mayor of New York City, who then got talked into running for president in 2020 and got sort of embarrassed and had to get right out. But anyway, he's a very rich guy and quite liberal. So Bloomberg is interested in acquiring either the Wall Street Journal's parent company, Dow Jones, or the Washington Post, a source familiar with his thinking told Axios. Uh, It goes on to say that, well, look, if Bloomberg were to get control of Dow Jones which is owned by Rupert Murdoch back when he bought the Wall Street Journal, you'd have this business behemoth. And Bloomberg apparently has a friendly relationship with Rupert Murdoch, according to this piece. At least one activist investor says they would rather News Corp spin off part of its business. Uh, This has to do with whether or not there's going to be a re-merger, I guess you would say, of the Fox News media side of things, which is basically television, and the News Corp side of things, which is basically newspapers, uh, print, publishing, and so forth. So, however, here's the tell why this isn't serious. Bloomberg has not yet approached Murdoch about his interest, nor has he begun to engage any official third parties like bankers to evaluate the opportunity. Also, as Bloomberg is friendly with, but not close to, Jeff Bezos, the owner who bought the Washington Post almost exactly a decade ago, he sees the Post combined with Bloomberg as a formidable competitor to the New York Times. Okay, here's the bottom line. Unless you have some investment bankers involved, unless you are talking to the people involved, unless you are doing due diligence, unless you're serious about this, I mean, Bloomberg knows how to do this. He didn't get to be a zillionaire by accident. Then it's meaningless. It's just a trial balloon. That's all it is. It's one person, possibly authorized by Mike Bloomberg, telling a reporter for Axios, this might happen, the boss is thinking about it. But when it's really a possibility, I know this from covering Wall Street when I wrote my book, The Fortune Tellers, about the media and the markets during the dot-com boom and bust, you got to have some financial muscle behind it. You've got to have bankers. Bankers do these deals. Without these bankers, these deals don't get done. They, you know, uh, Bloomberg and Murdoch don't just go out for a drink and say, okay, let's do it. They, there's a lot that has to go on for, especially at this level, and then there are antitrust concerns, and on and on. I guess there's some talk that maybe Jeff Bezos is a little bored with the Washington Post. It's on track to lose money. But look, he did not buy it for $250 million to make money. He's got lots of things that make money. Amazon. He's got a rocket company. Um, he's been a pretty hands-off owner. I know every time the Post 
does something, it's like, see, this is what Jeff Bezos wants. But that's not the way he does it. He meets with his editors. He is entitled to, to dictate editorial page policy, opinions, that is, as any owner would. But by and large, Jeff Bezos doesn't seem to do that. He's got other things on his mind. Now, here is the latest from the Twitter files. A reporter who works for Barry Weiss at her new free press operation by the name of David Zweig was given access to the Twitter documents to talk about, to research the question of COVID. And he writes, the United States government pressured Twitter and other social media platforms to elevate certain content and suppress other content about COVID-19. Both the Trump and the Biden administrations directly pressed Twitter executives to moderate the platform's pandemic content according to their wishes. So this is not one side or the other side, both engage in this kind of pressure of social media companies at the onset of the pandemic, according to meeting notes. You know, so this is not, you know, the, the, the power of these Twitter files is that it comes from actual emails, text, Slack channel, and so forth. The Trump administration was especially concerned about panic buying. They came looking for help from the tech companies to combat misinformation about runs on grocery stores. Uh, also, conspiracies around 5G cell towers, misinformation that could stoke panic money, except there there were no runs on grocery stores. I mean, there was a run on toilet paper, as I recall. Um, it wasn't just Twitter. David Zweig reporting that meetings with the Trump White House were also attended by Google, by Facebook, by Microsoft, and others. Now, where does this lead us? When the Biden administration took over, one of its first meeting requests with Twitter executives was on covid the focus was on, quote, anti-vaxxer accounts, especially Alex Berenson. Alex Berenson is a former New York Times reporter who uh, has been very critical of the vaccine program. Uh, there are certainly people who think he peddles misinformation. His supporters say he just has a different point of view. But here it is, uh, one of the first meeting requests. So, summer of 2021, a few months into the Biden presidency, President Biden said social media companies were killing people. That's a quote from the president for allowing vaccine misinformation. Berenson was suspended from Twitter hours after Biden's comments and kicked off the platform the following month. Now, was there a direct correlation between those two? I don't know, but certainly there was uh, pressure. Berenson sued and later settled with Twitter. Twitter had to cough up some internal communications as part of that litigation, and it did show direct White House pressure. Asking on Slack uh, what was the tone of the Biden people on this call. Here's the response. Overall, pretty good. They had one really tough question about why Alex Berenson hasn't been kicked off from the platform. Otherwise, their questions were pointed but fair. And mercifully, we had answers. So, if you're a reporter and you've got the president and the president's administration angry, it's actually a, a quote from uh, this litigation, angry, that the guy still has a Twitter account, that's kind of chilling. Now, you also have, again, I'm reading this in real time, so if it seems like I'm not going at my usual breakneck speed, we also have uh, Twitter's uh, head of public policy at the time, Lauren Culbertson. This is this month. She's doing a summary of meetings with the White House. And we see this word again. The Biden team was not satisfied with Twitter's enforcement approach as they wanted Twitter to do more and deplatform several accounts because of this dissatisfaction, we were asked to join other calls, several other calls. They were very angry in nature. So now we're really getting down to it, and this is not ancient history. 
Now, Twitter executives did not fully capitulate to what the Biden team wanted. Uh, the company often spent time debating these moderation cases and was had some concerns for free speech. But Twitter did suppress views, according to these files, many from doctors and scientific experts that conflicted with the official positions of the White House. As a result, legitimate findings and questions that would have expanded the public debate went missing. It's like MIA, put them on a milk carton. So, uh, there are all kinds of crazy reasons for this. Some of the contractors were in the Philippines, which had no idea how to do this. However, I want to get to this one example that I think will sum up the case as best I can when we talk about dissidents whose legitimate content was labeled as misinformation. So, Exhibit A, as David Zweig says, Dr. Martin Kaldorf. He is an epidemiologist at Harvard Medical School. So, not just some yo-yo, right? He tweeted views that were at odds with U.S. public health authorities and the American left. And needless to say, members of Twitter staff were very much part of the American left. Here's what Kaldorf tweeted. Thinking that everyone must be vaccinated is as scientifically flawed as thinking that nobody should. COVID vaccines are important for older, high-risk people and their caretakers. Those with prior natural infection do not need it, nor children. Now, you can agree with that or disagree with that, but it's not crazy. Obviously, the older population was the most vulnerable, and this has been true from the beginning of the pandemic. Internal emails show an intent to action by a moderator saying Koldorf's tweet, Dr. Koldorf, violated the company's COVID-19 policy because he shared false information. False, the false information was, in his view, as a Harvard Medical School professor, as an MD, that he thought that some populations needed the vaccine and others didn't need it, especially if you'd already had the disease. So Twitter took action. Koldorf's tweet was slapped with a misleading label, and all replies and likes were shut off. In other words, shadow banned. Slap of the label, nobody able to see it, nobody able to like it. You could like it, but nobody would see your likes. You couldn't share it. This is the Hunter Biden laptop all over again, except in the COVID-19 context. As Y goes out to say, I found countless instances of tweets labeled as misleading or taken down entirely sometimes triggering account suspension simply because they veered from CDC guidance or differed from establishment views. So that's my best shot. There's some more here that I'll dive into and, and share with you on tomorrow's podcast. So much for having the slow holiday weekend. So what am I going to talk about? It's Christmas. Yeah, well, never a shortage, not in our digital age. But I do appreciate your time. I do appreciate the opportunity to share these thoughts with you in an unvarnished way, without having to, uh, you know, toss to a commercial break or get kicked off the air. Kicked off the air in the sense of uh, the computer cuts you off if you don't play the commercials. And that's true of every uh, television network, at least cable or over the air. That's the way the dials are set. In any event, enjoy your vacation if you're off, and we'll see you tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. 
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. In these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.